0: To welcome all of you, of course, and to welcome Christian Huxburg uh, to the seminar. Uh, As some of you know, Christian received his PhD at York. He is an established authority on on CLR. Uh, His book, CLR James in Imperial Britain, this one was published last year by Duke. And this, even more recently, CLR James in Hackney. Published Red red Words. Yeah, you are. Published this year. Co-edited collection. Oh, co-edited. Thank you very much, um, Gad, and um, the UCL Institute of the Americas uh, for inviting me, and thanks to everyone for coming. Um, Gad introduced me as kind of an established authority on CLR James or something. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I never knew CLR James, I was too young. There are people in the room who are um, including CLR, members of CLR James's family, and I've been looking around, there's other people as well who did not know CLR James um, well, so I, I, I would um, defer to their authority. Um, yeah, and the questions. Um, but, yeah. The um, late uh, great uh, Jamaican cultural theorist Stuart Hall once described C.L.R. James as a great um, black Trinidadian historian, novelist, journalist, playwright, and revolutionary thinker as a kind of renaissance man. Um, There's a sheer wide range of his interests, not only his beloved uh, game of cricket, but in terms of all kinds of, kind of popular cultural forms related to the Caribbean, from Calypso, Carnival, and then thinking about kind of art, uh, his writings on Michelangelo, to Jackson Pollock. Um, obviously, C.L.R. James is a revolutionary historian. Somebody who wrote about the Haitian Revolution, it's intermingling with the French Revolution. Uh, but also the Russian Revolution, he wrote book World Revolution, The Rise and Fall of a Communist International, developed Marxist analysis of state capitalism, which was vindicated uh, with the Hungarian Revolution, and other kind of revolts across Eastern Europe with workers rose up against so-called kind of worker's states. Um, uh, his, 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 his work on, obviously, an anti-colonial theorist and, and activist, um, uh, and his work with people like Amy Ashworth Garvey, people like George Padmore in um, the 1930s, but also just writings on America, American movies, uh, American comics, uh, literature as well from Herman Melville. Uh, up to Tony Morrison, Um, and Hall noted that said no one person would dream of having all those lives of living in three or four completely different worlds. You could say that if your curriculum was to know about the things which James knew about, you would come out of that process knowing about the world, understanding the modern world. You would have taken, eaten broken bread with the dramas, with the big things that have made the modern world. Um, It was, you know... James was not just someone who wrote, a, you know, he's one of the great revolutionary historians alongside perhaps W.B. Du Bois, um, who's the author of Black, uh, Black Reconstruction about the American Civil War. You know, James writing Black Jacobins about the Haitian Revolution, but basically bringing into play, if you think about the great transitions from feudalism to capitalism, the great uh, bourgeois democratic revolutions, and the role that Du Bois. James emphasised the role black people played within these great kind of world historic uh, struggles. Um, there, but also just think about his own life. You know, some of the historic things he would have lived through. Um, born 1901, when British Empire was at its absolute height, uh, in some ways. To, you know, born in the British colony of Trinidad, remote outpost of that. So by 1989, British Empire's basically you know decline and fall is really one big story of his life. There. Um, um, British Empire, obviously, British imperialism still exists today. I mean, we can, you know, even in the recent election, although foreign policy didn't feature very much in the general election, um, the, the Labour Party, for example, its support for British imperialist state it was one of the key reasons why they, they were so damaged in, in Scotland. Um, uh, Their attempt there. But also, if you think about just, um, uh, if, you know, the whole legacy of the Russian Revolution, the uh, rise and fall of sort of classical Bolshevism, degeneration into the Russian Revolution, to Stalinism. These are some of the big themes of C.L.R. James's life. And obviously I can't really do justice for the whole of his life here, but um, I'm just going to talk really about the 1930s and the six years C.L.R. James spent in Britain, from 1932 to 1938, and his work as an outstanding anti-capitalist, anti-colonial activist here. Um, so this is a slide of him speaking, Fowler Square, I think about 19... 19- probably about 1935, um, so 18, 80 years ago, um, probably for the international African friends of Abyssinia or Ethiopia, which they formed in, in, in 1935 to uh, rally solidarity with the people of Ethiopia at the time of Mussolini's barbaric war. Um, yeah, you can imagine it's sort of denouncing kind of European um, imperialism and its, its complicity and its... Uh, it's it, the sense in which the great imperial powers, Britain and France did absolutely, nothing actually supported kind of Mussolini in that war drive. Um, nice quote, just to give a sense of James's sort of revolutionary politics in his period, he, he argued, um, but really but the attempt, the, the idea of the League of Nations, which was dominated by these, the victors of the First World War, um, who had carved up most of Africa between them already, would decisively act to defend the people of Ethiopia, um, was a kind of, uh, a, through, through imposing sanctions, as they should have done, the League of Nations obviously, Ethiopia, part of, a uh, member of the League of Nations, Italy, a member of the League of Nations, the ar- whole point of the League of Nations, the idea of collective security, if, to stay, if to one state attacked another, everyone else in the League of Nations would supposedly declare war st- to, to stop them. that, was a fear, that was the idea of the League of Nations, but James said to call on the League of Nations, uh, or to rely on action by the League of Nations, he said to come within the orbit of imperialist politics, he argued, is to be debilitated by the stench, to be drowned by the morass of lies and hypocrisy. And instead of kind of appealing for League of Nations sanctions, James urged this kind of alternative strategy of kind of workers' sanctions, international direct action um, and solidarity, industrial action um, from below to try and stop Mussolini's war. He argued, workers workers of Britain, peasants and workers of Africa, get closer together for this and for other fights. Now, as always, let us stand for independent organisation and independent action. We have to break our own chains. Who is the fool that expects our jailers to break them? Um, and uh, James, though, so if we think about the 1930s, just briefly, I mean, it's a period that has, in some ways, be, been mar- kind of been kind of a bit forgotten and marginalised within the whole scholarship of biographies that some gen- the, the, the early biographies, anyway, that kind of existed on on James's um, life. He, David Craven once described. Seoul, um, James, one of the most famous and yet unknown figures of the 20th century. Um, in some ways, his fame—he sort of James got fame late, really. This is, um, uh, you know, by the 19, it was really until sort of by the 1980s, really, the last decade of his life. That people suddenly woke up for the fact that he was someone who had met, you know, Leon Trotsky for discussions in 1939, and um, people met Marcus Garvey, met Martin Luther King. All these things. Suddenly, realistically, was still, you know, this figure like this was, was around, and um, uh, this is just one example of why it's appropriate. We talk about James in terms of why, why it's still appropriate to be talking about James, perhaps this year, because this marks the 30th anniversary of um, renaming of Dalston Library in, in Hackney, uh, which is what my little book was about. I just wanted to kind of just highlight this, really, because it was kind of this was sort of a, n- a nice um, commemorative celebration of kind of a particular kind of. Anti-racist sort of struggle in Hackney, but around the fact that the library, um, the struggle by the Black community in Hackney to actually make sure their local library was actually representative in terms of material it had, in terms of the staff there, of the wider actual community. But um, so kind of a a sort of part of an anti-racist struggle. But the fact they honoured C. L. R. James, and the fact that Hackney Council was ultimately kind of pressurised. This is the height of of kind of municipal socialism as well. Hackney's yeah. kind of declared itself a kind of socialist republic of Hackney in uh, this period. Um, the council. But but it was part of it, Having we held at this thing called an anti-racist year. And the fact they but the fact they showed CLR James really to David Library after this is kind of gives a sense of what James meant to, I think, the um, local kind of black black community and black activists more generally in, in Britain. Um, there's a nice quote from John LaRose, Trinidadian well, I think there's an exhibition on it somewhere um, in London at a moment about his life. There is. Um, and John Lero's sort of, he, he, was, he, organised, he was co-organised with Jessica Huntley, um, something called the International Book Fair of Radical Black and Third World Books um, during the 80s and into the 90s. And when he opened this, they asked CLR James to come and open um, the, the, first, the first one of these in 1982. And at, this, at the opening launch, John LaRose said, CLR James, he said, he come to England in 1932. And here he was in England at the age of 81, 1982, 50 years later, opening our book fair. After his tremendous intellectual activity in the United States and the Caribbean, in Britain, in other parts of the world. So for us, C. L. R. James has become a symbol for the continuity between the past and the present in Britain. He has displayed intellectual energy quite unparalleled among Caribbean people, African people, and black people who have lived in Britain. What I'm going to try to do, yeah, um, this evening is to really give a kind of sense of that intellectual energy of C.R. James and kind of where it came from. It obviously came from his early, early uh, life, it was apparent very early on in his, his, his time growing up in colonial Trinidad a kind of way in which he uh, became a kind of anti-colonial, um, uh, anti-colonialist uh, in, in, in that period, or somebody who was very, very critical, yeah, of, of British colonial rule um, in Trinidad early on. Um, but I, I wanted to really focus on sort of the 1930s, this is a key moment of world crisis and way in which James's intellectual energy con- kind er, manifest itself then. Um, so, yeah, I'll, um, I'll. I'll yeah, um, we can say some more about why perhaps James, James is, is was sort of why the 30s were kind of marginalised, given in his life. I mean, obviously, it's kind of James was. There's certain aspects of his life which I wouldn't talk about, which were fam- which are kind of making him quite famous here. For example, just just one, he, he was a, you know a cricket uh, correspondent for Manchester Guardian during the 30s, um, Probably one of the first black uh, yeah, sports writers, sort of in, in British history, in, in that sense. So it's not like James James was in some ways you know one of the, Most leading prominent uh, black public intellectuals in Britain in the thirties, but generally speaking, you know his 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 time there has been rather neglected. And this is I want to argue fundamentally: it's because James, in the nineteen thirties, as a result of the Great Depression, radicalised politically. He moved from being a a cultural activist primarily, uh, someone who was a writer first and foremost, a great sort of pioneer of West Indian novel. His novel *Minty Alley* was published in nineteen thirty-six, one of the first uh, West Indian novels to be published in Britain. Um, he was a writer, but he, he moved into sort of political, and I think really became one of the most sort of important intellectuals actually to radicalise politically in Britain during um, the Great Depression here. Um, he became a Marxist, he became a, a Trotskyist, he was really one of the, um, was well, the intellectual driving force of the early tiny British Trotskyist movement. He was one of the great, um, to think about a, a sort of metaphor from cricket, but otherwise he was really one of the opening. Axman of the uh, international Trotskyist movement. He was uh, outstanding. He was, out, he was uh, yeah, he was, I think, you know, he was sort of this outstanding Marxist, I think, actually, in Britain during the Great Depression. It's world-historic time, the rise of fascism um, to power. You know, Hitler takes power. Hitler's Nazis come to power in, in 1933. Um, sort of the greatest defeat for the working world working-class movement. Uh, in, 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 world, in world history um, and J, James remembers he said Hitler came to power in 1933, the world went political and I went with it lots of other writers um, uh, turned to the left um, in the 1930s lots of other writers radicalised um, to the left um, uh, amid this kind of in, in ideological uh, crisis, this, this political turmoil um, People you think people like you know famous were WH Auden Stephen Spendler, so on kind of British writers and things like that but most of those people kind of ultimately made their peace with the system later on and returned back to kind of you know bourgeois respectability and kind of you know careers or something James remained really one of the most creative and original Marxist thinkers throughout the whole of his life um, and uh, and I think partly this which one was to talk briefly about is just because most of those late intellectuals who radicalised politically looked towards um, orthodox communism, if they like. They looked to the Soviet Union. Western capitalism seemed to be in crisis, uh, was in crisis. Uh, it, seemed to be, um, it seemed to be, you know, Oswald Spengler wrote this book, you know, it was very influential among intellectual intellectuals, called The Decline of the West. It seemed like Western civilisation in some ways was declining. Oswald Spengler pointed to the rise of kind of, these kind of totalitarian dictator type figures arising out of it. In some ways, that seemed to be the future in Britain the rise, rise of the likes of Mussolini and Hitler and so on um, and they looked but people, most intellectuals looked to the Soviet Union it seemed to be apparently free from crisis uh, it seemed the planned economy it seemed to have found its way out of it um, you know, it seemed to be a new civilization Sydney and Beatrice Webb the famously these Fabians had no time for the Russian Revolution originally when it broke out had uh, no, no interest in that at all, really. But by the time that the Stalin's great plans had come into play, they called this kind of a new civilization and kind of looked towards it. It seemed also to be, Soviet Union seemed to be as, as increasing as the thirties go on, and you get the spread of counter-revolution across Europe. It seemed to be the last great bulwark against fascism. It seemed to be an anti-racist kind of anti-imperialist state uh, that seemed to be the great hope still of the world, while everything else seemed to be in chaos. And um, um, James, however, um, but then obviously with uh, those intellectuals that looked at that, with the rise of Stalinist terror, tyranny, later on got repelled by that because communism became the god that failed for those people, and that explains why they returned to bourgeois society disillusioned. James remarkably kind of um, independently orientated himself towards toward kind of Trotskyism, to kind of revolutionary Marxism, and became really one of the most sort of pioneering kind of Marxist anti-Stalinist Critics um, of, of Stalinism, avoiding um, and it kind of embracing kind of classical Marxism this idea that socialism has to be about the self emancipation of the working class, as we are about workers' democracy, rather than kind of, kind of statist, elitist kind of models, or what what Isaac Deutscher called the kind of vulgar Marxism of Stalinism. James wrote, you know, he read one of the key things. he, you know, he read he came across Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, um, which was given in, in Nelson by guy called Frederick Cartmell, who was a sort of publisher, who actually published James's first book, uh, Life of Captain Cipriani. He'd been a sort of... Cap- Cartmell himself wasn't a Trotskyist. He was he was, um, he'd been a tank commander, I think, during the First World War, but he was like books and he he, saw, he met C. L. R. James and saw C. L. R. James' interesting in ideas and looking around for things. And James read, yeah, kept, picked up the first volume of this in 1922 and, and read it, and then ultimately, yeah, I mean, writing World, World Revolution in 19... 19- Thirty-seven, um, sort of pioneering history of the rise and fall, Communist International, which is a classic work, really, um, alongside takes its place alongside Leon Trotsky's Revolution Betrayed, Victor Serge's sort of works from sort of from Lenin to Stalin, or twenty, you know, works like twenty years after, and so on, um, uh, sort of classic anti-Stalinist works from the nineteen thirties. Um, it was hailed by people like George Orwell, um, who described it as a very able book. Um, uh, yeah, Trotsky himself called it, a, called James World Revolution of A. Good book. Uh, respected historian E.H. Carr, who himself was a historian of a communist international, um, wrote in a review in International Affairs, his work is decidedly useful, as it is, it, in his analysis the course of the Russian Revolution, of, and of a point at which it took the wrong turning, Mr. James displays commendable independence of judgement and a desire to arrive at the truth. So, yeah, I think James really stands out, really, most intellectuals in Britain um, as, as a sort of most intellectuals in Britain, to be fair, to them, oppose, saw through fascism, they were against fascism. But if you count those that saw through fascism and then also had a critique of of Briti- British empire and imperialism, the number falls quite dramatically. But there's still quite a sizable uh, you know, section of British intellectuals who also had a critique of British colonialism and fascism. But then that, out of those one, those section of British intellectuals that... Opposed both imperialism and fascism, most of those people looked to, as I said, you know, the Soviet Union as a great hope for world. Only a very few um, really can um, yeah, actually you know um, people like you know people like George Orwell, you know, widely praised, widely known, people like Arthur Kostler, great well, not great, but <laughs> Arthur Kostler is ty- you know, had been until until recently kind of hailed as this great you know, wonderful liberal for being so, you know, seen through the barbarism, not only fascism, imperialism, but also sort of Stalinism. Um, but James deserves to be, to be in this number, I think, you know, alongside sort of the other Trot- intellectuals of the Trotskyist movement. OK. Um, James briefly, on his early life, so um, his own, you know, that sense of kind of seeing through, kind of arriving at the truth, that kind of clear-sightedness and that kind of respect for kind of, intellect, you know, kind of, kind of that intellectual training... Um, that meant James could, could independently orientate himself to Trotskyism and to Marxism, amid it all. these kind of, um, where the temptation was to look to, look to as a towards the Soviet Union. I think, in part, has to be originated with, with his kind of own kind of intellectual training that he received in in growing up in, in colonial Trinidad and winning this kind of scholarship to this kind of elite kind of Queens' Royal College. But it also comes about through you know through, his, through the kind of rich kind of um, uh, intellectual controversy there was among, 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 you know, in, in Trinidad itself. Um, his, you know, his father was a, was a history teacher, um, or a school inspector, actually, and um, CLI himself became a kind of teacher of English and history at, at Queen's Royal College, most of his 20s. He was at really, a, in, the, in the 20s, I think, a kind of, I argue, he was kind of a, really a liberal humanist who um, uh, looked towards people like Matthew Arnold uh figures like that in, for, in some ways. And, and I think he, what, what James creatively did, I argue, was sort of apply Arnold, who was a great Victorian critique of, kind of Victorian society, um, had this kind of kind of class analysis, a you know, kind of critique of, of, of Victorian Britain, where it was kind of the aristocrats as kind of this barbarian uh, class with no culture whatsoever. Arnold was a great you know, cultural theorist, the word cultural, culture and society. Um, Arnold saw the aristocracy as this kind of um, yeah, barbarians, really. Uh, he saw the middle class as kind of philistines who were only concerned with getting rich, fundamentally. And he, but, but Arnold was an elitist as well. He saw the, the populace as being uneducated and the role of kind of intellectuals like that to spread kind of sweetness and light down to the uneducated to populace. James really applied this, these kind of categories, I think, to colonial Trinidadian society, sort of critiquing the white colonial elite as this kind of. Uh, yeah, kind of, uh, Bob, bar- 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 yeah, sort of barbaric aristocracy, and he argued that kind of even the middle class, kind of Brit- uh, British uh, people who came over as agents of imperialism to um, into colonial trend, ultimately found themselves identifying with this kind of aristocracy and betraying the kind of liberalism of the English middle class or British middle class. Uh, so that's part of things James sort of argued. He saw the philistine middle class as really applying to his own class. that he came from a black middle class, educated middle class, because they. And, and the story, I've handed, out, handed a little handout here, sort of pro-consoles, beware, cautionary tale. It might be, uh, you know, we can, people can go away and read this or whatever. I'm not going to talk too much about it now. But in there, he has a kind of critique of this kind of um, layer in, in Trinidad in society. You always trying to ingratiate themselves with what went to the kind of white colonial elite and, and being fundamentally dismissive of a great black mass of the population. Um, there, it's kind of a wicked kind of satire, which shows James' kind of humour and so on. Um, and, but James also kind of, to be honest, through his little group, a kind of a beacon group of writers um, in Trinidad, people like Alfred Mendez, who was another great sort of writer. Mendez was a, he was a grandfather of Sam Mendez, who people knows, a um, film director of Revolutionary Road and Skyfall and things like that. Um, his, his, Alfred Mendez, one of James's great friends during the 1920s in Trinidad, who had fought in the First World War, I think he got um, gassed um, during the First World War, and came back to Trinidad... Uh, kind of anti-imperial, uh, you know, fierce or anti-imperialist and critique, critic of the colonial order, and James and Mendez um, and other people in this beacon group. Um, what they, what they, they had the kind of, they wrote stories which kind of scandalised the kind of uh, society of its day, you know, the, the colonial society in, in Trinidad. And You get a sense of that in this story here, which James wrote, sort of 1932. Um, he, he, yeah, I mean, oh you could see how it would scandalise uh, people back home to some extent, or these kind of middle class. So, um, it also, James then, however he looked, this is James, his, he, he himself kind of became, became a kind of, he moved from kind of liberal humanism to kind of this sort of kind of parliamentary socialist vision of this guy, Captain Arthur uh, Andrew Cipriani, who was the leader of the Trinidad Workmen's Association. He'd been a... Uh, commanding officer of a, a British West Indies regiment during the First World War who had defended black troops in Trinidad, um, uh, black troops in, in, in the in British Army, sorry, when they had faced the kind of institutional racism of the British Army and when they mutinied at, at Toronto in Italy in 1919. Cipriani had, had sort of rallied to their defense and so he became a kind of, kind of what he called a sort of self declared sort of champion of a barefooted man when he returned to Trinidad and became a leader of the Trinidad Workingmen's Association. And, in this book, which is first book, um, which he wrote before he came to Britain, um, really James and Miss, sometimes as an account of British government in the West Indies. What, what he challenged was the official British government position that the West Indies were, um, they could have self-government when they were fit for it. That was, the, that was really the line. And James said, look, the growth of a sort of mass democratic, sort of social democratic organisation like the Trinidad Workmen's Association, which was huge, Really in Trinidad and, and 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 pulled behind it, kind of intellectuals like like C. L. R. James who became a supporter of the Trinidad Workmen's Association in Trinidad. He argued the growth of an organisation like that, from below, based on um, kind of work, you know work, workers' organisation, showed that the people of Trinidad, you know, were manifestly ready for self-government. Now, you know, they should they should have. His position was really kind of they should have autonomy. Um, West Indies should have self-government autonomy within the wider British Empire. He wasn't yet a complete anti-imperialist, he he wasn't um, at this stage in um, favour of the overthrow of the British Empire as he became, um, but he was uh, yeah he, he was a, cri- a severe critic of it. I mean James just in sense when he came to Britain he was also a member here of the League of Coloured Peoples, which was an important kind of pioneering civil rights uh, sort of organisation in Britain. But again it was an organisation that pride itself and kind of middle class respectability, a kind of a, a kind of imperial. Um, Britishness to extend a kind of a sense in which black colonial subjects like James should kind of first of all stress their kind of pride in sort of aspects of Britishness but but argue that kind of institutional racism in Britain and colonial oppression kind of contradicted the kind of ideals of fair play and so on in the British Empire. Um, Okay so James, that's sort of James there, but he, he, why he became a Marxist in some ways was contingent on some of, in fact he, after coming to Britain he very soon um, left London, around Bloomsbury, where he first came around this area, um, and, and went up to Nelson in, in Lancashire. Um, and this is where he encountered, really, the English working class, really. Um, and the English working class, really, fundamentally, um, the, the cotton textile workers here, who actually, if you could see a demonstration of them, they're mainly, actually, about half of them actually were actually women organised. It's kind of, James' own, own writings, and writings were... Um, mainly about kind of women women's lives, actually, in work, works like *Triumph* and so on, emphasizing the actual. James didn't see the working class necessarily, you know, as this kind of masculine kind of thing. He actually always, if you look at his the kind of his writings, then his the sense of what he must have experienced in Nelson, he would have seen uh, working class in Britain as, 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 as kind of men men and, and women there, but under the he understood this community. So he saw, again, not only a kind of a, a community. Suffering, a kind of the austerity, uh, mid the Great Depression, mass unemployment, and so on, but a community fighting back, a community of resistance, is what he would have seen in Nelson. There was a big strike in 1932, cotton textile workers' strike. Um, and James also saw a kind of glimpse of kind of post colonial England, a kind of, I think, in Nelson, a sense of what England could have been like without uh, empire, perhaps. This is sort of fundamental, just, a, just one little quote. I mean, for example, there's a some of the mayors in Nelson. Nelson had this very rich kind of socialist traditions around the Independent Labour Party um, and around kind of municipal socialism a kind of a Labour council that built decent council housing. Uh, this period, they had, they had this kind of uh, this tradition of anti-militarism as well. There's a, one of the mayors, um, Joseph Robinson, for example, refused um, to include Boy Scouts in his mayoral procession in rejection of militarism. Another mayor, Richard Winterbottom, in the late 1920s, banned nationalistic music including the National Anthem, World Britannia, Land of Hope and Glory, and God bless the Prince of Wales, for being played at a local ceremony on Empire Day. Uh, the band was forced to play jazz instead. And a few months later, yeah, the Nelson Parks Committee even imposed a ban on military bands in local parks. and things. So, yeah, you get a sense of just some of the, some of the kind of, yeah, some tradi- socialist traditions that James came across in Nelson. But um, it was really, when he came to London, he, he turned in 1933, he spent 10 months there, in Nelson. um where's the he read Trotsky and so on. And he really became, for himself, into kind of anti-colonial activism when he returned to Britain. He um, returned to London, sorry. Um, and, um, you know, the black community in Britain at this time was mainly, you know, it was a mixture of kind of, it was very small, really, and mainly centred around kind of Tottenham Court Road in London. Uh, but it was, it was mainly kind of partly students, um, like, like James, that sort of muir that James was in, but also kind of um, particularly sea, yeah, seafarers around kind of various ports in London, in, in London as well. Um, and, and so um, you're much more working class. But I think the role James quickly, because of things like you know, Mussolini's war um, uh, on Ethiopia, quickly found himself moving into more and more kind of radical sort of anti-colonial circles in London. And um, his formation of groups like the International African Friends of Abyssinia, the International African Service Bureau, Come on to meant that 1930s. Britain witnessed Winston James argued the birth and emergence of a number of new black organisations. A level of black activism that was unprecedented. Showing this decade stands out as one of the most crucial decades in the history of black Britain, um, which often you don't really get actually from even kind of popular histories of the 1930s. Let's um, just uh, some just images. Which is Dan Whittle, who's who's um, uh, kind of written a um, sort of PhD on um, sort of the League of Coloured Peoples and. Um, he's got an article coming out in History Today in June or something, but he worked on these kind of things. He sent these amazing photos from getting Images. This is Sir James speaking uh, in, H- in Trafalgar Square against um, Mussolini's war. He gets a sense of kind of a, um, yeah, a passion, kind of the authority uh, of James, the confidence of James' knowledge orator really there. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, the crowd is kind of interested to look at in Trafalgar Square. Um, some of the people he met were, um, worked with him as well. This is a guy... Um, Chris Braithwaite, who I've written a little book about, if people are interested in Barbados, was a kind of a seafarer. Uh, he, came, became, he formed something called the Colonial Seaman Association of Britain, he was a trade unionist, um, he was a socialist as well. Um, and you get there again, yeah. And so he's, he's a, he became the organizing secretary of the International um, African Service Bureau. Um, and some, I mean, I haven't really got, yeah, I mean, I, I, I should just just pointed towards this kind of activism, really. Here, this is, this is, um, this is an interesting thing that I found over in Lily constantine papers um, to give a sense of kind of the outrage that Mussolini's war, the idea of a kind of a civilising mission in terms of Africa, um, spearheaded by Mussolini's black shirts into, into the last, one of the last independent areas of Africa kind of caused across the African diaspora. This is, this is an carnival uh, in 1936 in Trinidad, and there's a section of, yeah, dressed as kind of Ethiopian warriors. Um, it's quite, yeah it's, kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It shows the kind of transnational aspects of, 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 of this, the way it was going to reverberating in Trinidad. And that, that outrage fed into, in Trinidad, the kind of mass strikes and things in 1937, the kind of Caribbean labour rebellions which erupted a year later. Um, and, and, and the International African Service Bureau kind of was one of its, one of its when it formed in 1937, um, after... Uh, coming out of the sort of international African friends of Ethiopia, one of the first things it, um, its campaigns was actually rallying solidarity in Britain with the Caribbean labor like rebellions. But what I want to talk about last how long have I got? Ten minutes? So, you more, a bit more? A yeah. bit more, a little bit more? Yeah. What I want to really talk about is what I mean by the intellectual conquest of Imperial Britain, actually getting around to the topic while you're here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, and this is really good to talk about black Jacobins and. and and James, you know, to play Two which he wrote in nineteen thirty-two to thirty-four, when this sort of period when he's first kind of politically radicalising, when he's first moving from a kind of um, uh, when he's becoming a kind of pan-Africanist, really, uh, someone who's uh, identifying much more with um, not just uh, with black people, kind of not just you know, fellow black people, not just in the Caribbean, but across across the whole African diaspora uh, in this period, in, in response to kind of Hitler, sort of forcefully declaring kind of, you know, uh, pride in the Aryan race. Um, in this whole period, James defiantly, in the face of this kind of racism, this kind of, some of uh, racism which kind of perpetuated all sorts of kind of, um, yeah, thinking at this time, and in which James was forced to kind of increase challenge kind of racism um, in all sorts of spheres. James, James, James writes this play um, uh, about the Haitian Revolution, about his great leader, Toussaint Louverture, um, which gets staged in Westminster Theatre in nineteen thirty-six with Paul Robeson um, uh, in the in the title role. It's the first time sort of black professional actors um, like Robeson starred on British stage in a play by a, by a black playwright. So it's sort of it's a important production in terms of sort of uh, African theatre, Caribbean theatre, black British theatre, if you, if you like. But also the sort of the way um, yeah the, the obviously when the work. Um, the, the Black Jacobins. After seeing the play, um, or after after the play was performed in nineteen twenty six, George Padmore, James's great boyhood friend, somebody who'd been a leading figure of the Communist International, and then became a sort of yeah the key sort of Pan Africanist uh, theorist in, in 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 an activist uh, alongside James in Brit- in the 1930s in Britain. He either, after witnessing James's uh, play, but also James's political leadership in, in things like the International African Service uh, in, in international. African friends of Abyssinia argue oh, that James, he um, wrote a letter in December 1936. James came to London in 1932 to exploit a larger world to conquer. He has done well. Um, it's this approval from, from Padmore for what James has, has been doing. Um, but really, when you think about the international conquest of him, what James is doing, really, you have to really talk, I think, about, about Black Jacobins, which is James' defining achievement here. Um, Robert Hill, a Garvey scholar, um, Jane yeah, um, authority on, on CLR James describes it as kind of a warm piece of the Caribbean, this epic sort of panoramic account of of, uh, of the Haitian Revolution, which, alongside Eric Williams's Capitalism, Slavery, um, really overturned really a hundred years of British nationalist mythology and, and thinking about colonial slavery and abolition, um, slave trade, um, and it really James's work really places the Haitian Revolution really centre stage. Um, amid all the great kind of world historic uh, upheavals of the English Civil War, uh, American War of Independence, French Revolution, um as really this kind of this, this kind of yeah, you know, world historic revolution in its own right, not just a kind of some um, this kind of peripheral uh, affair which had been kind of dismissed as before. Um, and you know Eric Williams when he when he when he when he got when he um, graduated with first class honours in nineteen thirty five at Oxford, said, I've, I've come seen and conquered at Oxford. And I think really with, which, which you know, with, which, he, which he had, had done in, to some extent as a black colonial subject for empire and so on, descendant of slaves himself. James also, like this, could claim with kind of equal legitimacy in publication of this, that he had come seen and intellectually conquered a, a larger world of imperial Britain. Um, in 1938, in the first edition, he kind of, he was kind of perhaps reflecting on what he kind of personally achieved uh, when he, when he championed anti colonialists like Toussaint Louverture, who could combine within their single cells the unrelenting suspicion and ruthless ferocity necessary to deal with imperialism, and yet retain undimmed their creative impulse and their respect for the attainments of a very culture they fought so fiercely. I mean, this is to put it mildly. You know, this isn't what colonial subjects should have come. You know, was supposed to do when really, he come to Britain and then completely demolish the intellectual foundations of the British Empire um, in the stylish manner which James did in black jacobins, um, uh, overturning really this kind of orthodox position of kind of humanitarianism, um, which had really, the, 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 the orthodoxy was, was, was put out by this guy Reginald Copeland, Professor of Colonial History at Oxford University, author of works such as Wilberforce, the British anti-slavery movement. Um, and really, by the, you know, it had been reinforced by other, other works such as um, um, Klingberg's *The Anti-Slavery Movement in England*, study of English humanitarians, 1926. Um, Colin MacKinnon's *England and Slavery*, 1934. And this really sense, really, but really, um, the idea of an abolitionist British state that had, um, that had led the way through par- parliamentary campaigns well before, and so on, abolishing uh, the slave trade um, and, and so on, and that had given the British state. Uh, the moral high ground to then carve up and wage civilising missions across colonial Africa in the late 19th century. Um, uh, And and this myth, then after the Great War, had steadily been refashioned into a kind of new, sophisticated, imperialist, and paternalist doctrine of trusteeship, which had counterposed good government in the colonies for rising demands among the colonised for immediate self-government. As Copeland put it in 1923, well before said, more than any other man, Founded in the conscience of the British people a tradition of humanity and responsibility toward the weak and backward black peoples whose fate lay in their hands. That tradition has never died. British rule in Africa has been true to the principle of trusteeship. Um, and Copeland himself, kind of in his writings about the Haitian Revolution, kind of dismissed it completely as a kind of perilously isolated from the civilized world, he described Haiti as shut in upon itself by the encircling sea. Um, but James's own experience of growing up in, in West Indies, his Marxism, uh, you know, understood that actually this is the Haitian Revolution, the actions of the enslaved themselves here um, in making this revolution actually meant that this was the thing really that had been absolutely central to why why slave the slave trade, British slave trade, had been forced to be abolished, and a massive blow to the end of colonial slavery, the overthrow of colonial slavery as a whole. The um, you know, Haitian Revolution erupted in seventeen ninety one. And it really, um, you know, forcing the French to abolish slavery across their vast empire in 1794, in three years, forcing the British to abandon their participation in this highly profitable African slavery in 1807, only three years after the revolution's end. And just to quickly, just, quickly just final... I mean, I want to say a few, four things. I want to have five minutes? Yeah. Five minutes, five minutes. Just to just give a sense of what they did, I mean, Copeland's position was, um, since we're here, I mean, his position was you know, this kind of humanitarian thing. He, in 1935, he'd given a lecture on the meaning of William Wilberforce, of um, He said, the conscience of all England was awakened. That, in a word, is how the slave system was abolished. Not because it was good policy or good business to abolish it. It was neither. It was the opposite, but simply because of its iniquity. And yet James and, and Eric Williams, as well, kind of registered this grind-bodied scholarship uh, in, in France, in Germany. In America, there's a important work, 1928 work by Lowell Joseph Raggett's The Fall of the Planter Class of the British Caribbean, a study in social and economic history, tellingly, uh, subtitle, which made it clear that actually the British should partly abolish the slave trade, not because they were slowly realising slavery itself was not as profitable as free labour, or the old mercantilist system as potentially as profitable as free trade. As James put it in The Black Jacket, the rising industrial bourgeoisie feeling its way to free trade were beginning their victorious attack upon the agricultural monopoly which was culminating in the repeal of the corn laws in 1846. The West Indian sugar producers were monopolists, whose method of production afforded an easy target. Adam Smith and Alfred Young, the forerunners of the new era, condemned the whole principle of slave labour as the most expensive in the world. And James now tore into the likes of Copeland, and uh, his ilk with typically devastating wit. He said, those who see an abolition, a gradual, gradually awakening <coughs> conscience of mankind, should spend a few minutes asking themselves, why does man's conscience which had slept peacefully for so many centuries, should awake just at that time that men began to see the unprofitableness of slavery as a method of production in the West Indian colonies. Uh, he dismissed them as a fienal race of scholars, who because profiteering pandas to national vanity have conspired to obscure the truth about abolition. Um, James, James didn't dismiss you know, the, the role, the important role, you know, the role played by the likes of World Warfare, you know, Um but it's got a kind of West Indian saying, has it, you know, he had the will but not the force James emphasised it was the force of the enslaved themselves that had been critical here but James also you know, put it in you know, History of Negro Revolt his important work, 1938 work he said the abolitionists, it's true, worked very hard Clarkson in particular was a very honest and sincere man but a very considerable and influential section of British men of business thought the slave trade was not only a blot on the national name but a growing hole in the national pocket was the point of the matter and Williams, you know, would, would praise James here for his, his work, uh, for having presented, this is in, in early on, James, this is Williams in 1944 in Capitalism and Slavery, for having presented in a general way the relationship between capitalism and slavery um, in Black Jackins, And even 20 years later, Williams, after um, James and Williams had, um, uh, yeah, had, had fallen out and, and, and James had broken with Williams, uh, Reams of principle, still acknowledged on one level grudgingly the contribution made by James, uh, even though he's now a political rival, saying that in The Black Jacobins, James rescues the Haitian slave revolution, the rise of Toussaint Louverture from historical oblivion. His analysis is of profound and enduring significance, if only as one of the first challenges to the British interpretation of the abolition of slavery. And from this, I'll just to conclude, what, what this did, James' recovery of the Haitian revolution and its fundamental role, actually, in, in, in challenging the mythology around, around British uh, abolition, um, was it gave anti-colonial activists... Um, it, took, it did two things, one. one, it gave anti-colonial activists the confidence to tear into the British imperialist apologists of their, of their day. Um, uh, it's... Um, yeah, there's another slide. I mean, this is sort of just some of the members of the International African Service Bureau, people <coughs> like Amy Ashwood Garvey... That's George Padmore, James, this is Chris Bravewood I mentioned earlier. This is Raz Makinen, um, British Guiana, who um, joined the group. This was, these were all kind of from West Indies. These were seven sort of, some of the leadership of this organisation. Yomo Kenyatta, uh, Kenya, and ITA Wallace-Johnson from Sierra Leone. And I just thought I'd show you this slide because it's this, these kind of, um, the International African Service Bureau of the 30s the way for the Pan um, African Congress in nineteen forty-five in Manchester, which its anniversary has been celebrated sort of this October, uh, up in Manchester, there's a plaque in in Manchester, which was had people like Kwame Nkrumah at it. Um, du Bois came over for it, um, and it really that, that really was was a sort of fundamental conference actually in, in terms of importance to think about Pan Africanism. signalling that Pan Africanism was, was an idea whose time really had come, but it enabled those enabled the um, Enabled these activists to really, uh, yeah, tear into the, uh, yeah, the kind of forefront. I mean, James later recalled he said traditional England was under fire. It was the regular habit of a number of us colonials to go to public lectures and meetings of some of the most celebrated lecturers and speakers in England, and at question time and during discussion, tear them to pieces. Um, it's, uh, it's just a great quote, but you know, the sense in which actually traditional England at this time was ever really under fire from Marxist or Pan Africanist criticism might be doubted. Um, they were, actually, British Empire was kind of, there was a consensus actually among British politicians from left to right, from Labour, certainly actually about the British Empire and the need to actually uh, develop it and so on. Um, as Nero put it in 1926, British officialdom arrogantly had the calm assurance of always being in the right. The other thing, finally, I want to kind of point to just we can something, a discussion. I mean, I don't know if there's more scholarship, there's debate around kind of imperial Britain as a term, some scholars argue it really. You yeah, know, British Empire was already fundamentally in decline or by the thirties and so on. You can't really use the term imperial Britain. I know it was actually fundamentally, you know it, actually it was it was this it was actually uh, fundamental to understanding British side in the thirties was was a um, power of the sort of the empire. Um, this this by um, but also this kind of two quick things. One for Pan-Africanists they were not just up against kind of kind of institutional racism. Uh, of living in Britain in this period, problems with housing and so on, and what the kind of uh, the, the racism of, British, of, of of many British establishment figures of the day and challenging that. They're also up against this sense on the most of the British left and progressive intellectuals in Britain, British intellectuals, that really you could talk about India perhaps one day having self-government and being ready for this, but actually Africa was still, tropical Africa in particular, wasn't really ready for self government yet, it needed some kind of international trusteeship. And this was a consensus, really, even the most radical critics of the British Empire really had, really, at this period. And this is the kind of thing they were up against um, on the left. I mean, for example, when, when James published um, Black Jacobins, a uh, new statesman at the time, um, reviewing there, she said, reading predictions of the coming upheavals in colonial Africa had badly shaken her faith in Mr. James's intelligence and acumen. Uh, ironically, you know, 70 years later in 2009, the New States would, would actually declare Black jacobins as one of the top ten books to read, one of a great red read a great radical thing. So, so, yeah. But the point is, at the time, this wasn't the, you know, this was challenging Orthodox opinion. The second thing, I, and I'm well, I, I should kind of move on, really, is um, why, it's, why it was important, actually, Black Jacqueline well, was for the, it was not only about educating the British public about the truth about uh, about abolition and stuff. That was part of why James got on the play. It's part of why he wrote Black Jacobism. It was to, he understood the colonial question, you know, wasn't this sort of just question for, for colonial subjects? It was actually key for the British left to actually rethink this whole question, actually um, wake up to this, the importance of this. But it was also fundamental, actually, for for the, for the for black colonial uh, anti-colonial activists around James, in this period. Black, um, haven't we got time to talk about this, but you know, there was a sense among people hope had great fair hope. There's a nice quote from Garvey praising Lenin. Um was describing after Lenin died, Garvey described you know, one of Russia's greatest men, one of the world's greatest characters, probably the greatest man in the world between nineteen seventeen and nineteen twenty-four, when he breathed his last Weirs, black people mourn for Lenin, because Russia had promised great hope, not only for black people, but for weaker people of the world. That's Garvey in nineteen twenty four. But ever sense among a whole load of um, among black black colonial subjects, Russia was a great hope. And yet Russia, the Soviet Union under Stalin, in its, its betrayal of anti-colonial struggles, most notably around Ethiopia, the selling of oil to Mussolini's, uh, Mussolini uh, in 1935, that great betrayal, symptomatic of a wider shift with the Soviet Union, the communist International's turned to the popular front, and the disorientation of black colonial uh, subjects, meant there was this real debate around what, was, what the Russian Revolution meant. So that's a nice image of C.L. James in 1938. They just have the last slide. But essentially, there was a real contested notion of what black Bolshevism meant. What did it mean to look towards the Soviet Union at this time in the 1930s? Most um, people like Padmore, people like Chris Braithwaite, a whole number of these people had, to some extent, had looked to the Soviet Union of Great Hope and now were disillusioned. And, and with James's work in recovering kind of black Jacobinism, that, that revolutionary tradition around the Haitian revolution um, was absolutely fundamental actually in keeping those activists, anti-colonial activists um, focused on the main prize here and to avoid them becoming so disillusioned with the left, so despairing really that they might fall into kind of liberal anti-communism, kind of a cultural pan-Africanism or just drop out of politics altogether and retreat completely. And James will you know, try and lobby the the, the British government. I mean, even Garvey in the late 30s just started to take a more kind of positive view, see that it was a kind of a more positive side to British and French imperialism when faced with the kind of attempts, with, with the rise of Nazism, with the rise of fascism, and, and their attempts to kind of begin to try and look towards colonies in Africa. And, and James and Padmore would go along and kind of heckle Garvey and say, you know, this is a, this, you didn't used to say this, Marcus. You know, you used to be, you know, this is not an anti-colonialist position. But it also, you know, what, what, what Black Jacobinism did, final point, a final point, is James, it, it injected this, this legacy, this, this tradition, revolutionary tradition, into the debates going on at this time. James showed, as he put it in Black Jacobins, um, you know, the question of how a colony, a struggle, anti-colonial struggle, is linked to a struggle in the imperial metropole, that, that dynamic... Um, it's fundamental. What happens when you have a revolutionary struggle that you look to in an imperial metropole that goes down? A, G- a revolution that succeeds but then degenerates. So, you know, the Jacobins, when they in the, in the French Revolution, when they were overthrown, and the French Revolution degenerated into counter-revolution. James pointed out, you know, the Black Jacobin Toussaint did not have the political independence to avoid going down with that. Um, James put it, two sons' allegiance to the French Revolution, all it had opened up for mankind in general and the people of San Domingo in particular. This had made him what he was, but in the end, this ruined him. And there were important parallels there of these activists that looked towards the, star, you know, the Soviet Union as, as Stalin, rise of Stalin, genera- generation of revolution, you know, spiralling into counter-revolution of Stalinist terror. And, and yeah, and parallels there, and James was trying to stress to people the importance of having kind of independent revolutionary politics, independent kind of organisations. Um, so, f- final point, James, to conclude, was, I think, one of the most creative, significant Marxist thinkers to emerge in Britain during the Great Depression. Uh, in black, works like The Black and History of Negro Revolt, he applied the Marxist theory of permanent revolution to a past and present of the African diaspora with great originality and imagination. I haven't had much time to talk about the theory of permanent revolution, but that's a key thing for James. Um, and its brilliance as a Marxist historian helped ensure the historic lessons of the Haitian Revolution, the inspirational revolutionary black Jacobinism of Toussaint Louverture were part of a collective memory of many of those struggling for black and colonial liberation from the 1930s onwards. But in an advancing understanding of the rich, hidden revolutionary history of Africa and the African Diaspora, West Indian intellectual James did more than merely achieve the intellectual conquest of Imperial Britain. As Robert Hill eloquently once noted, James only spent slightly more than six and a half years in Britain, but in those few years, he added significantly to the emancipation understanding of the human condition. Good, good place to end. Thank you Thank very well. much.